Um, we, we are near the end of, of 2 Samuel. We'll be in 2 Samuel 22, covering most of this chapter in the beginning of 23. Um, I wanted to bring this book up here and show, show it to you. This is one of the books I've, I've used this whole series. I used other commentaries, but this is uh, a book called A Son to Me, an exposition of First and Second Samuel by a man named Peter Lightheart. Um, I would just recommend this to you. If you, uh, you benefited from this series thus far, um, you heard me say things that uh, you wanted to hold on to, um, that you forgot, it's a good chance that I was influenced, and I always try to mention when I am the commentators that I'm, I'm referencing, but it's a good chance Peter Lightheart's commentary was in whatever you wanted to remember. Um, and it, it's, a very, it's a very readable book. Uh, it, it looks and feels more like a book than a big old commentary. Um, you know, I, I don't think any commentator, including myself, is perfect. Uh, so I'm not saying here. Here is the unerring revelation of God to you. You can read this. Uh, but I, I do think he's really brilliant and, and reads Scripture in a really helpful way. So uh, that's called A Son to Me by Peter Lightheart, L-E-I-T-H-A-R-T. Uh, and you can check that out on your own. You can also come and grab this out of my hands for a few minutes if you wanted to. Um, this particular passage that we're in, in in 2 Samuel 22 is pretty much this is pretty much Psalm 18. They're they're virtually the same. They're almost exactly the same. Um, and Psalm 18 will will more likely identify itself as coming from earlier in David's life when he is not king yet and he's fleeing from Saul. So it's it's interesting that then the the person who assembled First uh, and Second Samuel would put this song at the end of David's life like this, out of the context of which he wrote it, in all likelihood. Uh, but there are some important things that it is saying here that very much connects with all of the themes of David's life that we've seen thus far. Uh, the the chapter is 51 verses long. We're not going to go through all 51 verses. I'm going to read the first 20 uh, and skip ahead toward the end, and we'll, we'll come back and forth a little bit. So this is uh, starting at 2 Samuel 22.1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his full mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. 
Out of the brightness before him, coals of the fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I'll skip ahead into 32. Who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strength, is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. He has made my feet like the feet of a deer. He has set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. And then we'll read the first few verses of chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is well and truly the end of First and Second Samuel, there is a, an epilogue. There are stories that follow this, but they're like the PS, the postscript to the story. These uh, are meant to be seen as the, the bookends, the end bookend of the story of David. David uh, is, is a psalmist. He's a songwriter. He writes many of the psalms that we have in the book of Psalms. And he gives us this song under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that contains this dramatic imagery of the way that David interprets and understands his life. And the way that he understands and interprets the way that God is in his life. And if you read the song, all 51 verses uh, in Psalm uh, 2 Samuel 22, you'll see that David repeats some imagery. He, He makes these cycles of images to help us see and understand what he's talking about. He's also doing it because he's a great poet, and that's what poetry can do at times. But he paints for us this picture. One is the way God is, and the other is the way the world is. And so David is is writing this as he's being pursued by Saul. 
And he, he knows that he should covenantally, he should be the king of Israel, but he's not. He should be over here getting what he should, is due to him sitting on the throne. But instead he is over here hiding in a cave, being treated as if he's a bandit or a criminal. And Saul is pursuing him. And this, uh, this disparity between what should be and what is makes the world feel unsteady and roiling with chaos. The image that he keeps bringing out in this psalm, this song, is that of the sea. That the world around him is like the, the bucking and churning of the oceans. And everything in that picture is chaotic. It's important to understand and remember that for the people of David's day, the sea was not the place where you go on vacation. The ocean was not the place where you go to put up your feet and get sand between your toes and, um, and everywhere else if you have kids. Um, the sea is the place where the powers of darkness and chaos and death are housed. The sea equals death. Uh, you can see it when you read Genesis 1. The, the author there is trying to convey that the state before God starts creating, and it's this dark, watery world that God then steps into and, and brings order out of the chaos. So the seas are, are chaos, an uncontrollable, unknowing evil. What David says is the enemies are, are, are arrayed against him and all around him. And what God does out of his nature is to pick him up out of the seas and place him on solid ground. So the imagery that he will ascribe to God again and again in this repeated cycle is that God is a rock, he is a refuge, he is his salvation. He is the opposite of all the ways the world is. The world is, is chaos and unpredictable, but God is steady and predictable. God is sure. And he keeps saying that his feet have been put on this safe place, a broad place, this place where he cannot fall off. And this, this, this depiction of the interior world of David actually helps us to see how he is able then to do all the things he does. So if you cast your mind back out of all the stories that we've looked at involving David, he seems to continually be able to, to give his enemies mercy. He, he tends to continually be able to trust that God will put him where he needs to be, and he doesn't feel especially compelled to go out and pursue it aggressively, but instead waits for God to bring that to him. His story is evidence that this thing that he's describing has seeped its way deep into his heart, that he has found God to be trustworthy and faithful in a world that is scary and dangerous. And as we readers who come after David and the legacy, the line of David, we can, I, I trust, identify with this depiction of the world. That the world is often unsteady and chaotic. And it, we don't have to just be talking about like cataclysmic events way out there. Although surely there's plenty in the news to tell us that that is true. Surely if you, you read the news for a week, which it's may or may not be recommended for your good health, there's plenty of things that you can, you can track 
just for a week that tells you the world is, is not nearly as safe as we wish it would be. But really, if you, you look and examine your own life, most of us, and, I, and I'm familiar with enough of you to, to be able to know some of your stories well enough to say that we probably all can stay, sit here and, and point out times where we just said, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. I don't know how this is going to work out. It's, it's tempting in those moments to believe, I must be uniquely bad at life. Maybe it's just because I'm terrible at living that this is like this. And often those, those thoughts, those feelings are magnified because we cut ourselves off in these moments of, of desperation or questioning or, or unsureness. And it just feels like everything is internal. Maybe I'm just so bad at life. I can't get a grip on things. But, but in those moments of, of desperation, if you actually stopped and talked to your friends around you, you'd probably say that you, you'd find that everybody would be saying like, oh yeah, been there currently am there. You are not alone. If you're terrible at life, well, I guess we're all terrible at life. And that could be possible. That's a possible solution to that problem. Maybe we're all terrible at life. Or maybe life is like this. Maybe life is perpetually unsteady and profoundly scary. The writer of Ecclesiastes will survey all the world around him. And the word that he will use is the world is vaporous. Everything is so fleeting. Everything is like, like steam rising from the pot or smoke over a fire. In one minute it has one shape and in the very next moment that shape is gone. And actually, that, that really is what life is like. It is vaporous. It is passing and fleeting. And when you are in the middle of it, sometimes everything feels fine and predictable. But in a moment, everything can change. For David, he is writing this song as a madman is chasing him down. And he does not know how he will survive this and do what God has said he will do. What he does know is who God is and the way God is. Now, when I am in the middle of these seasons of life where everything is vaporous and I, I am trying to get a grip on things, what I really want to know is how is this going to work out? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to make sure that my kids have what they need? How is this going to be okay? But that is not how David addresses these moments in his life, or indeed, we hope we can say, the scope of his whole life. David does not resolve the tension of the seas that are crashing all around him by getting from God some special means of how God will resolve this. Instead, his, his attention is fixed on who God is. 
David is, is never at any point given a long, long-term plan. Step one, God will do this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then everything will be fine. Instead, what David is given, what we are given, is a picture of the character and the nature of God. And then God saying to us, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me to be the way that I am now and always? Will you trust me? And this is the question that that lies beneath a lot of David's life, a lot of Scripture, so that we as readers and hearers of the text are constantly confronted with, do you see the way that God is? And will you trust Him to be that way towards you? Will you trust that God is good and He will do good to you? Now, in the middle of David's song, there are some words that we should look at. Starting at verse 21. It says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me. From His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you, I run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Now the writer, the assembler of 1st and 2nd Samuel, they assume and trust that you have read the whole book up until the end point. That you did not just plop your Bible open and say, boom, here's David's song in 2 Samuel 22, and disassociate it from his story. So they know that if you've been reading, especially what we call 2 Samuel, you have read the latter part of David's life, and then you get to this song, and your only response can be, that dude is a liar. Why are lies in the Bible? This does not seem right. The Lord has dealt me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. David was not allowed to build the temple explicitly, he is told, because you have blood on your hands. David is an adulterer. David is a murderer. This is not... Look... Somebody didn't come along and assemble and write 1st and 2nd Samuel, finish it, go to press, and then right before it started printing, somebody went there and slipped in 2nd Samuel 22. Sneak attack. They knew. They knew you'd read all of David's story, the whole thing, and then read this, 
And, spoiler alert, the epilogue has more stories of David messing up. So how can we read this? The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness because of the cleanness of my hands. How? Look, there's, there's a couple of ways of reading this, and I think they're important. First, I, I think we need to hear these words as I think that David would mean them. Because David is no dummy either. He is self-aware enough. This is the same guy that wrote Psalm 51, the psalm about repentance. He's the one that he expressed his repentance before God against you and you only have I sinned. David is not delusional. He knows his own state. So what then, in what way could we say that God has treated David according to his righteousness? The biblical idea of righteousness is tied up in a few ideas. One of them is the one that you always think of, which is being basically morally good. That's, that's part of the idea of righteousness. Another part of the idea of righteousness is, is loyalty. God often describes himself and his righteousness on the basis of his loyalty to his word. And so I think that David intends for us to read this, viewing him in a covenantal context. See, David was in 2 Samuel 7 when God made a covenant with him. David was already an imperfect and often immoral person. He already had many wives at that point. He hadn't killed anyone. Well, he hadn't murdered anyone yet. But God gave him a covenant in that moment already in his own insufficiency. The terms of that covenant were only this, that David would hear who God was and trust him. In that sense, David has maintained the covenant. He is at the same time a deeply flawed person, sinful, corruptible, and corrupted, and still somehow the covenant recipient who trusts God to faithfully uphold his covenant. And therefore, David is somehow miraculously in good covenant standing with God. So two things can be true at the same time. David is deeply flawed. He is a murderer. He is an adulterer. And because he trusts God to be who God is, he is somehow still righteous in the eyes of the covenant. That's what David is saying, is that God has been who he said he would be, and I've done what I said I would do. I would trust him. I would trust him. Now, this still leaves us with a problem here. 
Because if this is the way things are meant to be, where where God is faithful to his word, and as long as you just sort of trust God to uphold his covenant, then you get countered as righteousness. This kind of fills the world with an increasing and, and persisting confluence of the waves of sin and evil and chaos, right? Because then everything is still unpredictable. Everything is still awash with the power of evil. So yeah, God might be who he said he was, but the world still seems to be not quite right by any stretch of the imagination. If the ones who are counted righteous, the ones who are the righteous ones, are the ones who are also perpetually murderers and adulterers, well then, what is really the point? And it seems like the story of God's working in the world is that the world ultimately would not be that way. That the seas would not overcome the land. That the world would be set upon the firm foundations of God's character. That the flourishing that comes with being rooted in God's character would spread over all the earth. And yet, here we have this son of the waves saying his feet are planted on the rocks. How and why can this possibly be correct? David's David's final words in in, uh, 2 Samuel 23 are a prophecy. He says that the the Spirit comes upon him and he opens his lips as not just a psalmist but an oracle. And, And we know that these are not the literal final words of David. These are like the official last words of David. This is the thing, his last statement to, to Israel. What he describes then is this future orientation, this future look down the corridors of time. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. When one rules justly in the fear of God, the rock of Israel, it will be as if the sun comes out on a cloudy day. And the water is brought not to destroy, but to bring fruitful life everywhere. There is an unsettledness in David's story, in David's song, in all of the story of Scripture up to this point. You you can't miss it If you read the Old Testament and you look at just the most important people, the three most important people, Abraham, Moses, and David, they are, all of them, stories of mixed success and failure. And and the the Bible will go out of its way to help you see how deeply flawed these people are. You can see that the chaos of the waves is not just out there in the world but it is in their unsteady and unpredictable hearts. The Old Testament is is fraught with this tension of is this the way the world was meant to be? 
And David, as he is lying on his deathbed, is able to look past everyone who is present to see into the future and to see how this covenant-keeping God might be faithful to his family and to the word that he has spoken over all creation. David's able to see from a distance his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. And, and we don't, David can't see everything there in full clarity, but what he can see is this one who will rule justly, who will himself be like the God of Israel because he is the God of Israel, who is himself just and secure in his character. And his rule and reign will begin to address the chaos and confusion and collision of the world and will instead perpetuate and propagate the security that comes from being close to God. It was not meant to be that, that the people of God would always be such a mixed bag. There was no glimpse of a of a way forward for us. We had no understanding of how we would always, we would not always be this way. But when Jesus comes to be the king who rules and reigns, he does not just exit the scene and just say, get it together, guys. Be better. What instead he says is that the character of the faithful God his own spirit will come to live inside of you. So that yes, you and I still very much are mixed characters, but God does not abandon his people all to themselves that they might figure, that it, figure it out by themselves, but instead gives his people a down payment by his own life and presence to say that it will not always be this way. The rock of Israel comes to be the king of Israel to rule and reign in the world and deliver us out of the waters. You know, most of, a lot of the imagery that, that David uses in this song explicitly and intentionally plays on Israel's exodus. They are chased by the enemies of Israel right into the face of chaos and God splits the waters and leads them through and brings them to His mountain. And this is what the story of Scripture will come back around to. Is that you too are pursued by all the chaos that you feel, just the way that life is and the chaos that flows out of your own heart. You too are fleeing these armies of, of terror and evil and wickedness. And God does intend to rescue you. The way that He intends to rescue you is to bring you through the waters of death through which He Himself has shown the way. When Jesus dies on the cross, it is to enter into the, the very heart of the darkness and the chaos that we have been fleeing all of our lives. And He exits out the grave to show us the way through this terrible Red Sea. David's prophecy says, Does not my house stand so with God? 
for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they utterly they are utterly consumed with a fire. This figure here of the man who arms himself. Worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them. He arms himself with iron and spear. If you read Scripture long enough, you can't help but be afraid that you yourself are one of the worthless ones. You cannot help but be afraid. Am I the one who makes an alliance with the chaos and the unsteadiness? Will then God take up His spear against me? But when the the son of David, the right king of Israel, comes to show you the way through death, he does pick up iron. And he lets the iron pierce him in his hands and in his feet. And he does take up the spear. He receives it right in his side. So that you and I, the worthless ones might have all of that death ripped from our fingers and cast into the fire so that we can live forever. David is seeing from a distance and in shadow what in Jesus we can see with absolute clarity. The world life is confusing and scary. And if you're honest with yourself, so are you and I. God is the secure and predictable one. We can trust who He is. And we may not understand all the how of everything that He will do. But in the cross, we can see finally and clearly understanding how at least He will make us more deeply and truly His. He will win us and rescue us turning aside the powers of the waters. If you are here this morning, you are presented with this person, this descendant of David, this one who is stretched out before you. And and he's not going to stand here and, and, and say, look, if you believe in me and say it enough times or in the right way, then all your problems will be solved and you'll never have to be afraid again. That's not what he's going to stand here and say. Jesus is not the way forward to to wealth and temporal security. If that was the truth, then the Bible is poorly written because everybody, it seems, who follows Jesus tends to die poor. That's not what he's going to tell you and make you secure in. What he's going to make secure for you is that this is how God will conquer all the things that terrify you. And this is how you can know and trust that he will always be this way to you.
This is why you do not have to be afraid that you will be swept aside in the tide. If, you, if you're here this morning and you feel like you've been dragged out to sea by, by the circumstances of your life, by the sin in your heart, and you, you don't understand why the way the world is, you don't understand why the way you are, you have been racked and overcome by all of that darkness. The rock of Israel has not changed. And he wants to pluck you out of the waters and set you on solid ground with him. You, you, you cannot be worse than David. You cannot be more of a murderer and adulterer than David. And if David is able to sing this song even at the end of his life, then no matter where you are in your life, this song can be your song as well. Whether you, you were once close to Jesus and, and walked far away, if you've never been close to Jesus, the crucified son of David stands in front of you, faithful to the end, steadfast in his rescue, and is not put aside by how terrible your story may be. And if you are here this morning, that comfort of the gospel is also paired with the call to remember that all of your other agendas, if they are not centered around, anchored in Jesus, they're going to, poof, be gone. If your alliance is to yourself, is to your agenda, to your security, to your pleasure. And you just sort of put a little name of Jesus on it and figure that that'll be good. The cross stands in front of you today to remind you, God is not about the business of building your kingdom. It is very likely that whatever other thing that you put your hope in, it will be pulled out to sea oh so quickly. Instead, put your hopes and the one who will not move, the rock of Israel standing before you, faithful forever, unchangeable to the end. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we are able to pray Psalm 18, that we are able to pray 2 Samuel 22, and trust that as you are treating us according to the faithfulness, the righteousness of Jesus, that is according to the cleanness of the covenant keeper, covenant maker, that we will be treated. God, I pray for all those who have been battered and broken by the way the world is, both outside themselves and within themselves. Father, I pray that they will see you standing in front of them, beckoning them to come be seated in, in broad places, safe places with you. Father, I pray that you will help them to leave aside all of the things they've given themselves over to. They will stick out their hand to be rescued from all the things that have come upon them. And Father, I pray for all of us who are here and we are so tempted to give ourselves over to the agendas of this world. 
give ourselves over to things that are, that are vaporous and fleeting and chaos. Help us, God, to invest everything that we have in the kingdom of your Son. Help all of our treasure to be you in you. Jesus, shape our desires so that we become a people who become supremely satisfied and delighted in you. For you are unchanging and unfailing. You are faithful to the end. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to see it and to believe it. Amen.